Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the managing director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. Welcome everybody to this latest episode of Edge. It's my fabulous and great honour to welcome one of Australia's finest, Bev or Beverly Brock. Bev, well known obviously as the former partner of Australian icon Peter Brock. Bev herself has an impressive uh, profile, growing up in humble beginnings in Western Australia to reach the pinnacle of acknowledgement of being awarded an order of Australia for her services to community in 2016. A trained teacher, she's made a contribution to various things, including her passion of life skills and much philanthropic work that sees her today on uh, the boards of many uh, community organisations. She's an accomplished author, and obviously much of that has been uh, telling the Peter Brock story, but also presenting many other things to us. Welcome, Deb. Thank you, Stephen. That's a, a very impressive. It makes me feel, uh, is he really talking about me? Because that's not how I see myself. <laughs> well, how do you see yourself, Bev? Just somebody who, you know, had my feet on the ground, simple upbringing, and wants to see the world a better place. I mean, it's just, as a community, we all try and do our best. Um, and I think my childhood, because we were in isolation, if we didn't look after our neighbours, nobody else was going to, nobody knew we existed. So that sense of community is just part and parcel of who I am. And uh, the fact that I ended up living a life that I could never have ever imagined sort of doesn't change that instinct of who you are. And Peter was the same. We had a very similar childhood. And and so to be eventually in a position where you can actually contribute in a meaningful way to a community, you know, that's how you see yourself, just somebody else in the community doing what they do to the best they can. So many of our presenters or subjects on this podcast have talked about this strong sense of giving back and community. So take us back to your formative years or early years in the tiny uh, collection of houses, I guess, (laughs) in Western Australia. So what was that like? It was idyllic. I mean, we we didn't know the rest of the world existed. We were self-sufficient, essentially. You had to be because there were no corner shops or anything. We had, on the rare occasions when shopping was done, it meant catching the draft horse, hooking it up to the cart, a very agricultural cart, to go into the nearest shop and buying, you know, a, a 50 pound bag of sugar and a 50 pound bag of flour other than that you know we had your chooks and you you know I used to milk the cows before and after school we grew vegetables we had an orchard you know it was a very simplistic life we did have a bush telephone but no power no running water horse and cart but there was no alcohol there was no drugs there was no family violence there were none of the things that our kids today have to deal with you know we looked after the neighbors they looked after us if, you know, whatever you had in excess was on the back veranda and neighbours could come and collect it if they needed it. And if you killed an animal for meat, we had no refrigeration, the old Coolgardie safe. 
So um, you couldn't use all the animals, so you shared it with the neighbours and then they'd kill and they'd share it with you. So it was that idyllic childhood where there were no fetters. You went out and started playing early in the morning. You came home when the sun went down. Nobody worried about you. It was just... And, and if the world went to mush right now, people of our generation would be able to get by. The kids today wouldn't because they have no idea about being self-sustainable. Yeah, we'll weave through the, the whole sense of community and life skills and stuff that's obviously been imbued in you from a very young age to continue to contribute to. You're a trained teacher, Bev, home ec, uh, special education, taught science for most of your career. How did you find yourself into teaching? For me, we had a one-teacher school in a church hall and uh, they were short one kid. You had to have 12 to keep the school open. And this particular year, they only had 11. So it meant closing the school down. So they scoured the district. I was the child nearest in age, 12 months younger than I should have been, but got to go to school, which was fantastic. Now, unlike my siblings, for some reason, I loved learning. You know, I, I never missed a day of school. I, you know, I... It, it got me away from three unholy brothers <laughs> because then, uh, you know, it was post-war, shortage of teachers. Uh, I was awarded a scholarship. Nobody discussed it with me, but somehow I got it, which paid for my final schooling. And uh, it then meant teachers college, you had to agree to uh, teach for three years. So at the time, I was more home ec than anything because I had cooked and raised, helped raise my siblings. It was just the way it was back then. But in order to to become a home economist, you had to do physics, chemistry, bacteriology, nutrition, a lot of science subjects. It wasn't like people see today as teaching kids to cook and, and, and sew. So my early years were teaching in country schools where I taught everything. You know, it was art, maths, whatever. And night school, you taught at night school. So I very rapidly found that teaching home ec was not for me, I enjoyed the skills, but I didn't enjoy teaching that side of it. And science became it. So when I ended up in Sydney, um, I was uh, teaching in a boys' high school at Janelli and and teaching science, and that I loved. They gave me the bottom class of the special kids, and and the top class. So I had um, a passion for seeing kids who really struggled with learning. You know, I never had a kid fail their school certificate or high school certificate in science. And I realised that they were the ones who had a passion for learning if you took the right tax. So I ended up doing special ed in uh, Melbourne Uni. But by then, you know, I've got my own kids and I suddenly understand that everything I'd been taught about child psychology was rubbish because (laughs) it's all theoretical and not real once you have your own kids. And so I started teaching life skills in in the local community and, um, so be it, you know, that lasted for about 20 years. Thank you. When you were 21, I think, by my research, tells me that you had a, a water skiing accident. <laughs> well, I was teaching at a, a, a place north of Perth and uh, I had to help a, one of the girls out. We were the only single females for a big distance, so we we're in high demand. But she suddenly found out her boyfriend was coming up from the city for the weekend. So I had to take over her on her date, which was a farm. You couldn't get in touch with the, the farmers out on the stations, no mobile phones. No, a lot of them didn't have phones. And so I went out with a guy that I didn't know. We went, he was meeting friends to go water skiing in a, a, in a inland lake just out of Three Springs. And uh, I dived in the water, hit my head on a submerged sandbank, uh, was in trouble, broken neck, crushed two vertebrae, damaged five spots in the spine, and was life-changing. You know, I was exceptionally fortunate. I was told 
I'd probably never walk again, live in a wheelchair, never have kids, never play sport, blah, 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 blah. I was always pretty headstrong and I thought, well, they're not in my body. They don't know what I'm going through. Um, so I worked very hard at not being all the things they said and obviously I'm not. But, it, you know, it took its toll. I, uh, you know, a long time of, of struggle. You know, when I was teaching in Sydney, I was losing the use of my arms, couldn't write on the blackboard. So back in a collar, all of those things, you know, that you do. But what it did at 21 gave me a whole new appreciation for health and well-being because before then I was a keen sports person. You take your health for granted. But suddenly everything, diet, exercise, uh, you know, all of those things become paramount in your life. And so it's life-changing at 21 to have that wisdom. Later on, I was in my early 40s and, you know, I was really struggling with my neck, obviously had kids and did what any normal person would do when you're faced with that. I went and climbed in the Himalayas for five weeks because <laughs> you figure, you know, I may not be able to do these things in the future. So, again, I pushed myself and researched what I could do to stop it happening. And, you know, it's been successful. So here I am, you know, about to turn 75, fit and healthy, no uh, arthritis. But it's one thing you constantly work at. You watch what you eat, you make sure you exercise, you do get your headspace right. And I guess I'm one of the fortunate ones. So, you know, that's, that's my life in a nutshell. Tell me the day that you met Peter Perfect. Uh, <laughs> the day that you met, uh, for, for us males, uh, you know, we, we've got a sense of envy in terms of Peter Perfect, uh, iconic racing driver. For a lot of women, uh, you were uh, very fortunate in terms of taking his attention. What was that day like then? Well, I was married to a rather unique individual at the time who um, had his own particular outlook on life and uh, it really didn't match with mine. We'd had a seven-year marriage that uh, I, you know, because we brought up to believe you make marriage work, you don't just walk away from it. So I had believed I could save him, could help him. <laughs> his best mate was Peter's race mechanic and um, at that stage Peter was early in his career. He was going through a very difficult marriage breakdown, very high profile. They had no money. So when they came to race in Sydney, they stayed with us, which meant they had free accommodation, free meals. I'd feed them at the track and do the timing. My then husband was a mechanic, so he helped them out. So the man I met was, yes, he was a race driver, but he was totally insecure, going through a very, very torrid time of his life, didn't see his own ability at all. And me being Mother Earth and the motivator, took the chance to talk to him and and help him through a very difficult emotional time. And we came to realise that, in a sense, we were both married to quite similar people and we understood where each other was coming from. So we were good friends. I was at the stage of 30. Uh, I was listed as a, a geriatric prima grava because I was having my first child. I found my husband wasn't really interested in, in this developing child, but Peter seemed remarkably curious about this pregnancy and the child. My then husband was having problems and I said to him, any of these problems, once the child's born, I'm out of here, which is what happened. I walked out with a six-month-old child and at that point in time, Peter admitted to me how he felt about me. So I ended up with a man that I saw as insecure with enormous potential, had no idea what he was capable of. And so we started out, started out, he said to me, this is going to be great. And I thought, well, I hope so. I've just had a pretty torrid time of things. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Bevo, 
I'll take care of the big stuff. You can have the little stuff. And I said, well, what's the big stuff? He said, well, I'll drive, I'll earn the money, and I'll handle the media. And I thought, just as well, because I can't do any of those things. I said, so what's the little stuff? He said, well, you'll look after me. You'll raise the kids. You'll run the property. I don't deal with bankers and accountants or solicitors. And it worked. We had this amazing yin-yang relationship. You know, was it perfect? Hell no, 95% of it was. But, it, you know, we were under the spotlight. I wasn't used to that sort of thing. I, you know, I totally different life for me. So I was constantly on a learning curve. But he was too because um, he realised there were whole things in life that uh, he hadn't really embraced before. So, you know, he was a, a strong environmentalist. He, he, you know, we studied, read, discussed uh, psychology, uh, you know, sort of different cultures, different religions. So we had this really in-depth, you know, link in, in common interests. So it grew, but in amongst all of that, you know, he saw 10% of his life as motor racing and we fitted that in. And then he got into the business and uh, it sort of, I vowed not to be part of it until there was trouble. And then I sort of came in in a supportive role and found myself totally involved in a business that, you know, again, it's all male. I taught at an all male school. I'm finding myself involved in all male sport virtually and involved in a, essentially what was an all male business. So, my life was a constant learning curve. And uh, at one stage, he said to me, Bevo, I've taught you everything I can now. You're right to stand on your own two feet. I thought, well, <laughs> that was a very generous comment on his behalf. But I had always solved his problems for him. We'd talk about things. He would have loved me to be able to turn around and say, Peter, you're right. But I wasn't that sort of person. I'd say to him, present other points of view so that he would understand when he went out there that not everything he said was going to be accepted as verbatim. And he found that challenging. <laughs> so he had to learn a lot of things about, you know, how other people thought and be tolerant and, and all of that sort of stuff. So between us, our life grew in, in enormous ways. But we shared a passion for the community. He realised that he couldn't get sponsorship if he didn't have public support. He genuinely cared about people. But when somebody had come to him with their problems and he talked to him, oh, just give Bevo a ring and he'd give out my home number. So I'd get all these people from all around Australia ringing me with their various problems and he wouldn't like it because I'd be on the phone. I said, but you've given out my number. What do you expect me to do? Tell them to go away. It's It was sort of this constantly challenging growth curve, but it was great. So... What made Peter the Peter Perfect uh, the driver? I've heard you reflect on him and observationally a continual drive to pardon the pun to be better to find that extra. Was that Peter Brock? Absolutely, totally. It, it didn't matter what he was doing when he came home. We'd discuss it. You know, his victories were easy. They they weren't the things he had a problem with. The problem was if something went wrong and he felt he'd let down his sponsors or he'd let down his team or he'd let down his fans. And so there'd be this in-depth discussion about how he could make sure that when he went out there next time, he'd do it better. So the Peter Perfect came from his driving school, not from him as a person, though there were some around who saw him that way. He always saw himself as somebody who had a lot to learn, but he, he constantly worked at that until, uh, you know, the last couple of years of his life, you know, he's, he's facing 60, having to deal with the possibility of retirement, was no longer able to build the cars, do the engineering that he loved. He saw himself as a failure. He, he honestly, in the months before he died, 
thought that he had, you know, he'd let everybody down, that he was a failure and had never achieved anything worthwhile. And in hindsight, you can look at that and say, well, okay, that is obviously a, a, a mental health issue. He didn't see it that way. He was searching for who he really was and had felt that what he had done in the past was not enough to satisfy himself. And that was that was hard to see. But, you know, you can't be in somebody else's head. You can be there and encourage them, but how they interpret that is their journey. And he'd made me promise when we separated that I would no longer solve his problems for him or help him fix them. He had to grow and learn to do that himself. And he'd really lived a rarefied life where he had managers and he had support people around him. He had his team who took care of a lot of the, the dramas so that he could be the amazing person he was as a public speaker, as a driver, as you know, a, a sponsor's absolute delight. So, you know, there were areas that he was unbelievable in. He was an incredible artist, you know, great public speaker, but he lost sight of those things in the latter part of his life. Peter passed away on the 8th of September 2006, 15 years ago. It just seems like, well, for you, Bev, it must seem like it's there but not there. But for most of us, it seems like only yesterday. And it's, uh, time has uh, moved on. I often described, many have described Peter as complex, vulnerable, enigmatic, you know, all of those things. So listening to you talk about him with great reverence and uh, warmth and his search for identity. And uh, we're forever grateful to Peter Brock, but we're also very grateful to have you, Bev. And uh, let's talk about you as an identity, your work, that that community spirit that you bring from those formative years, your contribution to others. Uh, in teaching life skills, your book writing and all of that. So let's take us into your work. What are you doing at the moment that gives you joy and purpose? Well, I have been since Peter died and and I had a lot more time on my hands. In a sense, I had time on my hands. I didn't. But I joined, uh, I became a member of uh, the Melbourne Rotary Club at that point in time. I'm now, you know, 15, 16 years on, Vice President and President-elect for uh, next year. So there's a lot of work there in a in a community group that, you know, where uh, like-minded people can come together and achieve things that you can't achieve on your own. So Rotary has been a big part of my life. But I also joined the board of Skyline Education Foundation, which is, to me, the thing that makes my heart sing. So what we do is take uh, disadvantaged but talented kids, put them through year 11 and 12, and then uh, mentor them through university. So these are kids who, like me, would never have finished their school if they didn't have a scholarship. But it's not just paying their school fees and uniforms and that sort of stuff. We give them masterclasses in life, in self-development, leadership, all of that sort of stuff. And the most amazing young individuals um, come through the course. So I've just um, participated in the interviews for next year's intake. And so we get, you know, have to interview probably 120, 130 kids, but I can only give out 80 because it's, you know, it costs us $11,500 to put each one through two years. So I've got that. And then Peter and I were also patrons for the Lighthouse Foundation, which provides homes for street kids. And that's still, I'm still uh, involved with them as a patron. I was very fortunate when Holden closed down, they came to us as a family in Peter's name to see who we would like to see a donation to a, a charity. And I have to say that because Peter and I shared the, the Lighthouse Foundation patronage, 
the money that Holden put forward from that went to them, which was absolutely fantastic. And so then just general community stuff. Uh, I live in a, a little Enviro community. You know, there was issue, issues around uh, getting acceptance for refugees from uh, Syria into Australia. So anything that, that's there that I've got time for that my heart says do, I do. And, and that's because... As one of my sons said to me at one stage about another person, about mum, they take up valuable oxygen that can be used by somebody worthwhile. I guess that's part <laughs> of the philosophy that I've got, that you just don't sit here and tick away time. You've got to feel as though you can add something of value to the world around you. So currently I'm sort of writing a book as a fundraiser for Skyline on uh, leadership, inspiration and success. So, you know, that is ticking away in the background. But I, I, you know, did personal interviews for such things. I, I get amazing opportunities. The archival history of Collingwood, Carlton and Richmond football clubs and to do all the personal interviews with the incredible sports people, mm-hmm. administrators, you know, coaches and that just opened up a whole other world. And, and a lot of those people were prepared to talk to me because of the association with Peter. So I've got you know, to open up in ways that they wouldn't to a lot of people. So, you know, my life is diverse. I can't complain, except that right now with the pandemic, I can't get to see my kids and grandkids. But other than that, it's um, a very rich life and I have absolutely no complaints. Have you mentioned uh, leadership and writing a book about leadership and something that uh, obviously um, I've attempted to be involved in and uh, the imperfection and the seduction of trying to be the best leader you can be and you're always striving, as Peter Wood, for perfection. From your observational vantage point, what are those things that leaders are important things that leaders should have or dispositions they should display? Well, first and foremost, they have to be good at whatever they're trying to lead. They have to have a a natural uh, ability there that that lets people see and trust them. But that's on its own is not enough because if they don't have the personality and the skills to empathise and encourage and inspire, the ability to communicate, to listen effectively to the people under their watch, then they're not going to get there. For this book, I did an interview with uh, Eddie Wu, the uh, mathematician, and you talk to somebody like Eddie who, again, had simple beginnings but has a passion. But his ability to communicate in ways that the average person can understand is vital to his role. I had uh, the opportunity one time to take a group of people to a Deepak Chopra course over a weekend, and Deepak writes remarkably well and his books were you know at a time were very popular but when I found you're sitting there in in the you know the first day there's all these people I've never seen so many diamonds and jewels and so forth sitting in this (laughs) audience in the first day but when he spoke he spoke with this very educated knowing all approach very elevated language and you sit there and think most of the people there were sitting there thinking what the hell is he talking about Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day they had paid thousands for that weekend and a lot of them never came back the second day and you sit there and think what is it the man is an incredible leader he he can write but didn't have the ability to talk at a level that engaged Mm -hmm. people who were wanting to learn so to me it's like seeing Peter as a driver he stood apart because he was more than a driver. He was more than an engineer. He was more than a 
a team leader. He was a person who cared about people. He had a, could handle the media. He had a complete package that made him stand apart. There were a lot of other guys out there who were good drivers but didn't necessarily have all those extras. And to be a top leader, you have to have far more than knowledge in your area of expertise. You have to be a complete person. And without empathy, without the ability to communicate effectively, you're not going to get there. That sense of being empathic, uh, your sense of giving, your sense of purpose, your contribution to others and your absolute authenticity and warmth just so connects with me and so connects with so many other people. We are so grateful to have you and the work that you continue to do on behalf of so many. Any final comments that you'd like to make, Bev, for our listeners or to this particular podcast? Look, for anybody, people don't understand their own ability. I mean, I, you know, a lot of life skills is about reaching your goals. Well, as a kid, I could not possibly have dreamed of the life I would live. It, impossible. It didn't exist. We had no books. We had no television. We had a radio that mum listened to Blue Hills on. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your limitations are. If you believe in something, and to me, I've never set a goal to achieve it. I've just simply tried to be the best that I could be at that time with no ultimate ambition. And one of the things I've found in climbing the Himalayas is there's many paths up the mountain. It doesn't matter how you get there. When you get there, the view's the same. So it doesn't matter how you go about your life. As long as you are doing the best you can, it opens up doors, possibilities that you never dream possible. And so I discourage our, our scholarship kids from having a total focus on one thing because if they do... They close off the possibility of other opportunities. So I, I encourage them to, yes, if they've got a goal, I find a lot of the kids end up in uni in, in the first year or first three months think, well, this isn't what I thought it was, and then feel as though they've failed because they're not honouring what they've told everybody they're going to do. But to me, that's success. That's eliminating things that aren't going to work for them. So to me, the world's your oyster and anything's possible. Just be the best you can be, and who knows where it's going to end up. Rob, you're an absolute great Australian, and we thank you for your contribution to the fabric that is Australia and the legacy that uh, you contributed to Peter Brock, but also the identity that strongly Bev Brock, and you continue to make that community contribution and a difference for others. So thank you, Bev. Thank you very much. I am very much humbled by that statement, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown One. Please join us next time for another episode of Edge.